McNulty stunning for Emilio to get up above Cargill and find Bennett. It's into the box. McNulty cut back for Roberts. It's Gary Roberts from Bosby. Bosby are leading in the fourth round of the FA Cup. Mark McNulty, but a good chance by Doyle for McNulty on the edge. Mark McNulty oh, short yes. for Bosby. Smashes it past McCormack. One by Doyle. Finished by the returning Mark McNulty. First left blood for Bosby. They're in dreamland early here at Bratton. There's a through ball to Jamal Lowe. Jamal Lowe's onside. The flag stayed down. Jamal Lowe. Nonchalant. Fantastic. Brilliant. Pompey will be promoted at this rate. That is it. Pompey are champions. They won League Two in the most dramatic of circumstances. The PO4 podcast with Hugh Bunce. Proud to be Pompey. Hi, Bobby fans, and what's Pure Forecast episode 165? Well, it's one win in seven in the league. Are the Blues the 1 1 specialists? Join the podcast today is Andy Mitchmore. How are you, Andy? Hello, buddy. Not too bad. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, to, to quote Proudy, I think it was becoming Jack Ross FC, aren't we? Yeah, I'm not too bad, mate. How has your week been? What's happening in the world of Bunts? I've been doing, you know, lots of taxing stuff, really. Start of a new job. Um, I've been going out for various different breakfasts and lunch with suppliers who I don't know. So obviously that's been quite difficult to, you know, keep the waistline all right, considering I'm being offered free pastries and other stuff uh, all morning. It's a tough life, but someone's got to do it, eh? Man's got to step up. Not all, not all heroes wear capes and all that malarkey, Andy. So yeah, yeah. But all, all heroes do eat a load of almond croissants, apparently. Yeah, I'll be honest, I actually felt a little bit ill yesterday after the breakfast because I, I started off with a with an almond croissant, which is quite funny because you said that, but it had chocolate in the middle of it as well, which threw me, so it was quite heavy. I'd already taken half of a raspberry uh, cupcake at the same time. This is all great podcasting, isn't it? But yeah, uh, <laughs> I was thinking about trying to lose some weight before the dreaded December, but alas, it's not quite happened. But Freddie Webb, how are you, mate? I am not so bad, Hugh. Yeah, it was uh, nice to see you on the Saturday. Obviously, the result was a bit grim. So uh, afterwards, me and a friend uh, went for a, on a bar crawl in Southsea and got very drunk to get over that game. But yeah, I've been good. Usual usual work stuff, really. I really like the Slovakia home kit you're wearing. Looks very, looks very lush. And Andy also with his, what looks like a Tanzanian T20 cricket shirt, but it isn't. It might be a football one. I'm just really impressed tell. you you would recognise a Tanzanian T20 cricket shirt. Probably. It That's just it. looks like what it sh- what it could, it could be a Tanzanian 2020 cricket. No, shirt. this is this is the Tanzanian 2012 kit that I picked up from a flea market in uh, was it in Dar es Salaam maybe. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a genuine kit. And as I was just saying pre-recording, I washed it once in 2012. And the Adidas badge fell off the sleeve, and I've kind of re- I'm reluctant to ever let it see warm water again. <laughs> so I don't wear it too often, but um, yeah, seeing Hughes retro Slovakia shirt, I thought I'd represent the slightly old school, unusual international team crew. So Fred, you're letting the side down. Um, Hugh, oh, where did you get oh. yours from, bud? Well, I actually didn't get mine from a flea market, and and you're so well travelled, you know running away from frogs or chasing tigers and now you're in a flea market and yeah this is mine's uh, mine's not so much of an international story actually mine one was um i bought it during the euros i really like the shirt and i bought it off what i thought was a legitimate uh seller on ebay it turns out it's completely fake when it turned up so i traced it back spoke to ebay 
turns out it came from a house in Stoke that was later abandoned when I tried to send it back. Um, eBay did refund me the money. I know it was abandoned because the shirt came back and was it was sent back to me. And eBay said that this business has been closed down due to policing reasons. So moral of the story is don't buy a football shirt from Stoke. I think you funded something a little bit dodgy there, but somehow <laughs> I've I've picked up a fake football shirt for about £1.50 on a flea market and it's even less dodgy than you picking one up in Stoke. You've done well there. I don't know if that reflects worse on Stoke or Dar es Salaam. I'm not sure. Stoke, it definitely reflects worse on Stoke. 100% does. I love Dar, so yeah, no bad things to say about it. Stoke is clearly a place to avoid. Um, Just before we get into the football, Andy, could you reassure the listeners that why you left partway through and I didn't tell them? Because a few people have messaged me asking if you're okay. So if you don't mind reassuring people that you left, not because of some sort of emergency, that'd be great. Uh, No, I was was kicked out of my own Zoom call by Hugh Bunce, who just didn't like my opinions. He thought they were too radical and... uh, you know, offensive and just wasn't allowed on the rest of the pod. But no, I had to disappear, unfortunately. I had, a, I had a time limit last week and one of my esteemed colleagues here turned up 15 to 20 minutes late to start the podcast. I'm naming no names uh, for anywhere, but um, I therefore couldn't Mate, stay till the end bl- of it. Blame Virgin Media. That was literally what was going on. I was restarting that router about six times. <laughs> oh, uh, it was grim. Slash checking Scout. Yeah, exactly that. That's what he was really doing. Getting, getting that XG game sorted out. But um, no, nothing bad had happened. Thankfully, no, I just had to disappear. But thanks for your concern to everyone. All right. So just before we get into it, thanks to Stephen Co, who bought us some coffees on buymeacoffee.com. It is really appreciated, Stephen. Thank you very much, buddy. We appreciate it. It will help thanks, me mate. pay this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> These hosting costs, which I'm currently having to work a second job for but yeah we appreciate that massively so so thanks for that so let's get into it first of all we're going to review the rather drab game against shrewsbury following from that we're going to touch on the absolutely shocking display against afc wimbledon and then we put a question out to you guys and we said pomp have now won one game in seven in league one are the recent performances acceptable considering significant injuries in the squad? And finally, we spoke to Ben Goddard, who works for the Press Association and covers Hereford Football Club, to give you guys, and us, let's be honest, we don't know that much about them, the lowdown on everything of the game on Sky on Friday night. Right. It's on BBC, isn't it, rather than Sky? None of that pay. Uh, I trust your television. Is it, I thought it was ITV, actually, now I said that. It's it's on free television. Yeah, it's on free to air, it. I think. I don't know which. But um, the game on Friday like... on free TV. Right, let's get going. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of positivity here tonight. I'm I'm excited for this. Considering the re- the recent performances, Andy, the level of positivity between us generally, I think it's just a bit hysterical, really. But let's get into it, right, boys? Back on track. My job's the host. Is the... I'll start hosting this. Shrewsbury. Me and Freddie were there. Stood next to each other the back of the frat and end. And I've got to say, we were pretty concerned in the preview before last week that the three in the middle of Shrewsbury Town, you know, Leahy, Bayliss and, and Winchester, were going to cause us a lot of problems like has happened before when Pompey had come up against a, a three in midfield. And it really did, didn't it? It really did cause us a lot of problems. We started off okay, I thought. There's a bit of interlapping play between Swanson and Dale. They sort of linked up nicely. Swanson got round and did a bit more on the overlap in this game, which I thought was very good. Sort of progressing on what he did at Forest Green and being solid defensively, but then also providing more of an option going forward as well. 
he creates a chance there, uh, gets it round, and Bishop puts a header uh, on target, but the keeper saves it quite comfortably. But then it starts falling apart, doesn't it, a little bit? And there's too many games this season where Pompey have allowed a team to go one up and then we're sort of chasing it. It's all right at the start of the season, we said, when you know, when we're sort of we're losing with amazing comebacks, etc. But when the team can't score more than one goal, Freddie Webb, going one nil down isn't really a great option, is it? No, not at all. Um, again, it was similar to many of the other games at Fratton Park. I think similar to the Oxford one all draw, similar to the Fleetwood one all draw. And I feel like I've watched Pompey play this sort of game against Shrewsbury over several seasons now. Shrewsbury played exceptionally well against Pompey, I thought. Um, didn't create that many chances, but their midfield was just so solid. And the, and when they were when they did have possession, the link-up play between all of them was really good. But it was up to Portsmouth with possession to actually move the ball around with some pace and some purpose and to actually create some proper chances, which they pretty much failed to do, unfortunately. Frustrating. And uh, and you can see you can see it in the fans in the ground, the frustration balled over as usual. And I don't think the 4-4-2 formation helped in this game. I really didn't. But purely because, um, yes, I know Pompey had more possession, so in effect, they could control the game a little bit more from that, but they couldn't deal with a low block, really. They couldn't deal with it at all. And that was largely down to the midfield, unfortunately, or a certain section of it, which we'll talk about, and the movement off the ball not being good enough. Um, I know injuries haven't helped. It didn't help that Clark Robertson was chucking his guts up in the changing room before the game, according to Danny Cowley, due to a sickness bug. And that's why Rico Hackett didn't play either. But if injuries are the excuse, week in, week out, while Pompey are dropping points, while other teams are winning, eventually it's going to come down to more than that, isn't it? Yeah, we'll get onto that a little bit later in the in the list of the questions. That's the topic. But if we look look at the first goal quickly, defending is really static, isn't it? And it's when a team's so unconfident and letting goals in, you just got to look at how static the defending was. The ball comes out. It's not closed down properly. They get the, the shoes players. A lot of times take a snapshot, hits the post, comes in and out. And again, Pompey is slow to get to the second ball or slow to get over it and try and put a block in as well. It's blasted home. It's 1-0 Shrewsbury. Andy Mitchamore, what are your thoughts on that first goal? Yeah, it's not that they're slow to react when the ball comes off the post, buddy. They don't react. No one moves. It's like... Elliot Bennett frozen. was in ages like of space for that chance, you, wasn't he? You know that first round in Squid Game where like the big head turns around and if you're moving, you just get shot. Genuinely, they're all about as still as that, except Ogilvy makes a sort of a token effort to get across, but there's no way he can get across to the, the man that makes the finish. Karoma uh, is completely on his heels because uh, obviously he doesn't expect the ball to come out at that angle off the post. But yeah, the entire defensive unit, I mean, Pompey have got, what, nine players in the box? Most of and- their team in the power area. Most of the team. And it wasn't was it only, it was- I think it might be only Bishop that's not in the box. And yeah, the, the initial, initial shot comes in and it is just static. There's no movement. There's no sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, where you expect something to happen. There's no an- anticipation. anticipation. Yeah, there's no anticipation whatsoever. Everyone's on their heels. It's just so poor. <laughs> um, I know that you can't predict a ball, the angle a ball's going to come out at off a post. And it does go pretty nicely to their player for the follow-up. 
but Karoma, I think it is it Karoma tracking back and he stops his tracking back run just before the original shot comes in. If he tracks back properly to his man, then he at least puts a challenge in to that rebound, but he stops tracking back too early and we get punished. It's not all on him by any stretch. It's the the other eight players in the box probably could have done a little bit more. I'm not going to put it all on one person, but yeah, it, it's not slow. It was it was static. It's like someone, you know, Bernard's watch. It's like one of the Pompey players pressed Bernard's watch. That's a very, that dates me, that, that, that CBB, I, I, I think if it's that CBBC show, I may have watched it at some point. I'm with yeah, you, Andy. On, Sorry, I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that reference. Yes, yeah, yeah. I was being babysat when I was about like four years old or five oh. years old. That was on. I used to watch it. But um, honestly, it was, it was almost like that where they couldn't move until the ball was about to be passed into the net. Yeah. Anyway, that's two yeah. very niche, two very niche analogies I've met there. So I'm going to shut up while Fred actually talks about something useful. No pressure, it, it, mate. It wasn't just the reaction from when the shot hit the post. It was the fact that, yes, if you're playing in a low block like that, you've got Carl Winchester dribbling the ball with lots of players packed in the penalty area. It should be likely that that shot is deflected wide for a corner most of the time if the defensive unit shifts where, where Winchester's going. Obviously, they thought, oh, we're not going to press him because then there's a then there's a gap open for another midfielder, so I'm fine. If you want to shift over, put in a decent block for a throw or a corner or anything, fine. But no, they didn't move. And then Winchester managed, manages to get that gap, hits a reasonable shot, unlucky really to hit the post, falls to Bennett. Um, yes, I know it's unlucky with the angle, but he was in acres of space. And like Andy said, there was no anticipation to close him down. And it was a lovely finish. And then Pompey were on the back foot, back foot again for pretty much the rest of the game. Frustrating, is all I can say to that. We were talking about block shots. And I was talking to the guys over at the Salop cast after the game, just in a bit of a chitter-chatter on how he thought it went. And he said it's some interesting stats that in the second half, Pompey had nine shots, none on target. Four of them were off target and five of them were block shots. But that just shows how well they were set up to block those kind of shots. And... You know, it's the kind of thing that Pompey don't seem to be doing properly and not being in position and not tracking back leads to that sort of problems. And then when you come up against a team who do do that properly, we seem to struggle to get and find a way through them. But let's move on to the time we did find a way through them. And again, our luck comes down the right-hand side. Create a bit of space and we win a corner. Freddie's shouting so loud at the back, back of the front and then not to go short. It's absolutely hilarious because all the people in front of us then <laughs> Do you want, that, do you want a direct quote on that? Because I remember then. what I said. Uh, it's explicit, so apologies. Oh, stop with that short corner shit. And then they, they literally ball play to Zach Swanson, one touch out his foot, curls it into the top corner. Beautiful finish. I look like a twat. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I was still celebrated as much as everybody else. You're, you're setting yourself up there a little bit, mate, with the whole I look like a twat comment, but um, I'm not going to take a cheap shot. Then again, it was me who left my vape on the floor and stood on it while celebrating, which then triggered me for the rest of the afternoon with how poor we were. So, oh, excellent. Twats together. <laughs> yeah, Twats United. <laughs> But yeah, <laughs> that's more of a football team name. Yeah, I was going to say there's a lot of other other teams you could you could call that our fantasy football team name for next season. But yeah, what I like I think, about mate, Swan- I think it's um it's a nickname for this podcast for some people, isn't it? Twats United. <laughs> Don't start that. It's going to go viral. Well, probably not. Let's be honest. Not with our five listeners listening. But yeah, let's let's be honest. Let's move on quickly because what I like about with Zach Swanson is the fact that the ball sort of he sort of lets it roll across him, which creates that space. So it opens him up to hit it on his left foot. 
and you know, obviously he plays as a right back. He can play on the left as well, but that just shows with his, with his foot. He doesn't usually hit it with. He's not as good foot. He he smashes that. But he also curls it, doesn't he? It's a brilliant goal. My man of the match for the game, actually, Zach Swanson, I thought, got forward well. Also Pompey man of the match, I believe, as well. Great player. Should have been man of the match on the sponsors, but, you know, it wasn't. So what does that say about them? He linked up with Owen Dale really well throughout that game. That's one of the major positives to take out of it. And Owen Dale, for me, was the one person in the midfield that seemed to create a fair bit. Um, I thought it was just a Fletcher shot that went out for the corner. He set up the short corner routine as well. And also there was Swanson overlapping from Dale, link up play on that side, which was brilliant, I thought. That, uh, that's what, okay, there's a partnership going there. Similar similar to with Rafferty as well. So when Rafferty comes back fit, I've got no qualms about Swanson or Rafferty playing in certain games now. We're going to talk about the other side of the midfield a bit because me and Hugh were literally just expleting about it pretty much the entire game. Do uh, it now, Fred. Let's go for it now. Let's talk about Josh Karoma and coming on the inside too much. Well, that sounds really bad. Let's talk about Josh Karoma and drifting inside too much. Karoma! Unlike Dale and Swanson on the right-hand side, I felt really bad for Conor Ogilvy, who's trying to make some runs forward on the left as well, similar to Swanson. But if your left-hand winger just keeps drifting inside into the centre of the pitch, it causes to be really narrow. Now, Shrewsbury, if you said we play in that three in the middle, we know Winchester's a good defensive midfielder, etc. And they just crowded us into this central play where we couldn't get forward. It just meant that Conor Ogilvie had no option to go around anybody. And it got so bad during the game that some of our strikers, Dane Scarlett and then Piggott when he came on as well, ended up trying to drift onto the left-hand side a bit to find some space in the gap that was left completely devoid by Josh Caroma. For me, it was probably the worst game I've seen him play for Portsmouth. He, he was generally quite terrible in this game. And even people who don't like Ronan Curtis as much or rate him as highly as some others were calling for Ronan Curtis to come on. And I thought that was probably one of the decisions that was a little bit odd not bringing Ronan on. But Josh Caroma, he needs to stay on the left wing if he's going to get some joy. And when I checked out the heat maps as well, you look at Owen Dale and his heat map is right down that right-hand side on the wing in really advanced positions. Whereas Josh Caroma didn't have any real opportunities in that space because he just didn't run into the channels. And that means that our attackers as well are so so squished up front. It was It was really shocking. Fred, I'll fire over to you because I could carry on all day. Yeah, it was probably his worst game in a Pompey shirt, to be honest. Um, it wasn't just the fact that whenever he got on the ball, he always looked to cut inside. He, Whenever he, when he held the ball and went for a dribble, he rarely looked for the overlap, even if it was there. But I'm sorry, it was the fact that, again, drifting into the centre of the pitch, so your strike partner, Piggott or Scarlett, who should be on the last defender, covers the space for you, no, that's not going to fly. That's not going to fly at all. Um, you can say what you like about Ronan Curtis, but Ronan Curtis' positional play is quite good. He's always an outlet on that side, every single time. And Chrome's crossing throughout the game was pretty poor. He didn't create a lot either. He wasn't really helped by his centre midfielders because I didn't think Mingi had Mingi had probably not as good of a game as his last two games. Um, Tony Cliff did some of the defensive stuff well, but he didn't support the midfield going forward either, to be honest with you. It was pretty poor. And it was it was just the fact that the right side of the midfield looked so good throughout the game, but the left side was just devoid of creativity. It made Pompey quite easy to defend against, to be honest. Are you saying, Freddie, that we need 
Danny Cowley to go down more the the John Beck school of managing from Cambridge in 1990-ish, where if a player cut inside, he used to take him off because he wanted players to stay on the wings. I was listening to Dion Dublin talk about it the other week. And uh, he said that it was Steve Claridge, potentially, I think, that he was playing on one of the wings and cut inside and had a shot that went wide. And um, he'd come, just come on as a sub. And then John Beck just took him straight back off again because he told him not to cut inside. So he punished him for not staying on the wing by just <laughs> un, like subbing him back off again. I don't uh, see that because like... our, our only left wingers are all right-footed. Exactly. <laughs> so if we so take that away from them, what, what, what can they actually do? Well, we do have a suggestion, don't we? We do have a suggestion. It, it got to the stage again later in that game when you just want some balls into the box because you look at people like Scarlett and Bishop in particular who really do feed off those balls into the box. You know, That's where Colby Bishop's got most of his eight goals this season. And me and Fred are chatting and it's gone back to that thing where we think, after 70 minutes and whatever with Josh Caroma playing, get him off, get Denver Hume on and put him on left wing. He has absolutely no defensive responsibility. Well, he has some, obviously, but not the same he would having at left back. And he was a player that wants to cross the ball into the box. That's what he likes to do. So that was something we thought during the game. If you're not going to bring Ronan on and you want someone to put a ball into the box, might as well bring Denver Hume on. At least he's left-footed. You might as well at that point. Um because Shrewsbury were defending really well and Pompey's creativity was poor and they weren't really testing them that much. I think a key stat that was interesting in this game, Pompey had 25 touches in the penalty area, which is higher than their 17 and a half average for every any League One game. Compared to their expected goals in that game, it's nowhere near. Nowhere near. Even, even though they were getting into the pe- even though they get into the penalty area a few times, the low block just stifled them. And one of the few ways to stifle a low block is to switch quickly from one wing to the other, shift the defensive line, put a cross in and hope a striker runs into the gap. And if you're playing two up top, that's more. there's a better likelihood of that happening. And uh, yeah, it, it was a shame. It was a real shame. And uh, yeah, put, put a big downer on things, really. Yeah, it did massively. Do you want to talk about this game anymore? We've got a lot to talk about. I'm going to move us on otherwise. There's only one thing about this game that we have left. Um, The listener's favourite segment where Andy just winced. So I assume he still hates it. We have to do Guess the XG, don't we? Guess the XG. This time I'm going to go for an opposition player. What do you think the XG was for Elliot Bennett's goal for Shrewsbury Town that to put the Salops one another? What, for the actual rebound once the ball has reached him? Yeah, it's Elliot Bennett scored their goal. So, yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's me to go first this time, Hugh, because you went first last time. So in the interest of fairness, I should probably go first this time. I can't even remember what the one last time was. I try and usually use the previous week's one as a bit of a threshold or a bar to kind of uh, to level it. But I, I literally can't remember what the chance was last week. We... I can tell you what it was. I'll help you out. 0.46. Yeah, yeah I, I remember the number because I got it dead on, but I don't have a clue what chance it was. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, I think this one's similar. I'm just basing that off just not being able to um, remember exactly what the chance was last time out. Um, I think it's coming out at not too great a velocity off the post. All he's got to do is beat Griffiths, really, because he's done hard work by by getting away from Coroma and Ogilvy's 
not able to get across in time. Slight angle, which I'm guessing is going to lower it. I'll go 0.42. This is really difficult because it's very much whereabouts I wanted to go. So I'm wondering whether I just switch it up and... Cause it, do I just go either way to make don't, it a Don't go down... Don't go 0.0 on either side because we all know that's just a dick move. I think as a minimum of 0.04 either side. So I'd go. Oh, zero. I don't know. This just seems a bit unfair. Oh, okay. Well, let's just let's have it from. Well, here. yeah, but going going first in is a disadvantage. So maybe that'll level out the disadvantage if we have that sort of rule. I'm going to go with the Andy Mitchamore 0.46. You is closer with 0.46 compared to 0.42. Bennett's Bennett's goal was 0.56 expected goals. Considering where he was, the angle's quite wide for him to put it in the far corner. Yes, he could have missed his shot, put put it straight to Griffiths, maybe. But yeah, that's what Y Scout said. And even more interestingly, Carl Winchester's shot beforehand. More interestingly, Fred. I failed to believe. There's no way you've got a fact more interesting than that. Carl Winchester, uh, Carl Winchester's expected goals on the shot that hit the post was 0.11. Both of those chances were 0.7, 0.67 expected goals. And Shrewsbury's total expected goals throughout the entire game was 0.7. So literally pretty much their entire quality of chances was just from those two shots. So how much is a penalty, Fred? 0.7 or 0.75? 0.76 is a penalty. So those two chances combined were basically a penalty? Less. Just, yeah, but yeah, okay, yeah. just under. Yeah, zero point six seven was those two shots. Yeah, for all intents and purposes, that's a cent. That's only slightly lower than zero point seven five. Okay, mm. interesting. Mm. Do you take the cumulative, you know, more than one shot, or do you have the one pen, Andy? But who cares? Let's be honest. It's five two to me, and uh, let's five, move it on. I was within one last time. I pulled okay. it back to within one. Yeah, I it did. Was it was. Four it's two. either four. It's either four three or three two. Five three, I believe. All right, go on then. I need I'll to give actually it to write these down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last week I got within one. Now it's two gap, definitely. Fine. It's 5-3 to me. Let's move it on so I don't get so smug because it's just irritating people listening. So let's talk about the AFC Wimbledon game. Freddie's favourite competition. I know he has a big poster on this wall that just says Papa John's Trophy. He's loving it up. Enjoying life. So I'm guessing, Fred, you were taking a lot of notice of this game in particular. But let's talk about the actual game itself because Wimbledon basically were already through in this competition. So they didn't even really need to play a lot of their first team players. This was literally an opportunity for them to play a lot of younger players in this team and which they absolutely did. Pompey lined up with a surprisingly, from my perspective anyway, strong team, especially since we've got an FA Cup game on Friday. We're playing a Tuesday night in torrential weather. I was at the start just shitting myself that some of our players who are playing on the pitch now were going to be injured. That was my big concern coming into the game. And to be honest, Andy, who took the most notice of this game, watching it live, it wasn't a very good performance against such an inferior, due to their age and their experience, team. Yes. So I'm not going to overreact to this. What I am going to say is that Wimbledon had four of their regular first-team starters playing. So Wimbledon, who are, what, 14th, 15th in League Two, had four of their, I think that's about right, had four of their first-team starters playing. Um, Portsmouth, as you say, named a fairly 
strong lineup on paper. In terms of the injury considerations, I think it was Morrison went down fairly early on and gave us all a a slight heart palpitation that he'd picked up a knock. But um, yeah, you look at that that centre midfield of Morel and Tunnicliffe. You look at a front two of Piggott and Scarlett, Dale and Curtis on the wings. Like that's a pretty pretty strong front uh, front four you're looking at there. And they didn't really go to plan. It started off pretty well. Uh, first, I think Danny Callie said first 25 minutes, so I'll go along with that. I can't remember exactly how much I enjoyed the game until. Uh, but obviously we scored fairly early. Decent finish after some good work uh, from Scarlett. Again, capitalising on a bit of a defensive mistake in the bad weather conditions. Good finish from Curtis. Good composure. What you love to see. Comfortable win incoming. Wimbledon keeper makes... One really good save just after that. I think there were a couple of Wimbledon chances between, but uh, yeah, one one really good save from the Wimbledon keeper. Can't remember who it was from off the top of my head. Then it was unspectacular, but solid enough till the break. And then second half was pretty much as disjointed as I can remember seeing us play, to be honest with you. Just genuinely, even in the bad weather conditions, torrential rain does make the ball zip around a bit, but... Which barely couldn't like could barely complete a pass. It felt like it was just so disjointed. The players weren't on the same wavelength. When there were runs being made, they weren't being picked out. Then passes were being made where runs weren't being um, being done. It was just so just bitty and just disjointed and sloppy. And it was a really tough watch. If I'm honest, I didn't particularly enjoy it. As I said, I'm not going to completely overreact and go crazy because it was tough weather conditions. It is a t- it's a cup we don't care about too much, but at the same time, I don't see the overall relevance of that because it was still our, one of our stronger lineups. I don't think it matters what competition it is when you're lining up a fairly strong side against a very youthful League Two team. But um, yeah, not overreacting. Distinctly unimpressed. It feels like a theme with this tournament in that when Cowley names a lineup, uh, we say, oh, here's a chance to really, you know, for these players to lay down a marker and prove a point that they should be making an impact and be given a chance in the league. And it's been after probably every game in this cup, except the Aston Villa under-21s game, we've gone, well, they haven't done that, have they? Like, there's no one in that lineup you'd say, well, they nailed down a place. Curtis was good while he was on. Um, Dale had his moments as he usually does. He's a you can't say that Dale doesn't get into the game because sort of two out of the last three games, he's looked like he was about to blow his top with frustration a couple of times at what was going on around him. But yeah, frustrating one. No one has really nailed down a place in the next game off that performance. I uh, feel a little bit for Freeman. It was obviously a mistake from him in the way, way the conditions that, that led up to Wimbledon's goal. Uh, good to see uh, Josh Olawayami put in a good performance in the shootout. And uh, it looked fairly solid. I think he misjudged a couple of crosses during the game, but looked generally fairly comfortable. That was good to see and obviously did a good job in the shootout. And um, I thought Josh Dockerall as well came on in the second half uh, to replace, I think he replaced Morrison and Pompey grad, uh, Academy graduate. I thought he looked pretty good, all things considered. I think he was actually one of our better players in the second half and hopefully is a good prospect for the future. And played a couple of really nice balls. You know how we like playing out of defence. You know, centre defence plays up to 
a drop deep centre midfield player and then a triangle forms around them. The first part of that, him playing out from centre back to defensive centre mid, I thought he did really quite well. I made a couple of quite good tackles as well. So, yeah, he wasn't flawless, but you wouldn't expect him to be coming into the first team like that. So, yeah, Dockerall and Oluwayami were the, the two standouts for me. The rest of the team have done nothing, as far as I'm concerned, to, to push their credentials that they should be starting on a uh, on a week-by-week -week basis in the league. And Wimbledon were good value for the, the draw in 90 minutes. They were the far better team in the second half. They created better chances. They looked like the home team in League One. If I'm honest, in that second half, it was pretty poor. That's that's my uh, not over not overreacting, not getting all crazy about it. It was just a pretty poor second half, and I didn't particularly enjoy watching it, to be honest with you. And fair play to Wimbledon, who did turn up. And um, yeah, Asal is a very very good player on the left hand side. Caused problems for the entirety of the first half. Deserved his goal. Yeah, looked very, very good. And there's a reason he's one of their standout players in, in League Two. Broom had a pretty good game in goal for them. Looked solid enough uh, in difficult conditions. But yeah, that's that's the in-depth match review, lads. It was uh, a tough watch. Was that, was, that, was that sign him up, Vassal, on the left-hand side then, Andy Mitchell, in January? Oh, well, if uh, if Freddie keeps laying into Josh Caroma, then, uh, <laughs> then he'll probably want to leave the club and uh, we'll need one. Yeah, yeah, we've yeah, got. To I, I, I have a couple of things, Andy, from this game. Hit me, Freddie. A, a lot of the reaction that I saw after the game was some people defending that performance because of the weather and how bad it was. So, do you think that makes it understandable that they played badly, or is that an excuse? And then I saw the usual accusation of, "Oh, the depth players don't care." Do they? In that game, did it look like they cared from you when you were watching it, or did they look like, oh god, it's a, it's a cup competition midweek that we didn't care that we not bothered about? Um, I would say, in answer to part one, it depends what aspect of the game you're looking at. If you're looking at individual mistakes and slipping over in tough ground conditions, yes, it's understandable. Which is why I'm not laying into Freeman for his mis individual mistake, sort of misjudging a header for the goal. It was a bad mistake. But with the conditions that can happen. Similarly, for, for our goal, it began from a Wimbledon player slipping over in his own box while trying to clear it because of the weather conditions. So from that side, yes, mitigating factor. For the inability to string two passes together, no, not a mitigating factor because the Fratton pitch is gorgeous. Our groundsman does an incredible job. And that was a zippy pitch with rain on it, maybe a little bit more. It wasn't even an approaching sort of Sunderland at home paddling pool levels by any stretch of the imagination, which is the level at which you say, yeah, okay, playing down on the ground is a bit difficult here. It wasn't anything like that. It was a zippy surface that they had the opportunity to try and play fast, fast football on. And to be honest with you, Wimbledon did that more than us, particularly in the second half. And Wimbledon did it fairly successfully at times. So yeah, there's kind of two answers to that question, Fred. Uh, the second part, about they don't care. Uh, no, I don't think I would support that. Uh, I, I don't think it came across that they didn't care at all. I, I, I'm always very careful about levelling the accusation of players. I think it's a very easy accusation to make and it, it can be a fairly lazy accusation to make. And I didn't see that. I just think they played extremely poorly and I don't think it was because, you know, they didn't care about the competition. 
because they've all got a reason to play. They've all got a reason to want to put a marker down for the league because there are spots up for grabs in the league at the moment because our form hasn't been brilliant. This was an opportunity for them to all do that and particularly for Piggott to get, you know, what did he get? Did he get the full 90 or did he come off? I can't even remember at this point. But for, um, I think he got the full 90, Joe Piggott. It was a rare opportunity for him to get that. And yeah, didn't he had one opportunity where he, he took a first touch around the keeper and actually probably could have gone down and had a decent appeal for a penalty if he'd left his trailing leg in or something. But he didn't. He tried to take it around the keeper and got forced wide. But other than that, there wasn't a huge amount to offer from him. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say they didn't care. No, Fred, I think that's a, that's a big statement to make that and I wouldn't go that far. Fair enough. I saw that Cowley gave some reasoning to why he made the starting eleven that he did um, in the news. Uh, the bit, firstly, he wanted to try and qualify and foster a winning mentality. Second, he basically picked whoever was fit and available. Um, but also, a lot of the academy players had an FA Youth Cup game, which is being played on Thursday. So the players who would have been may have been available in those B-team competition games had a match already scheduled with the preparation, which would probably be better for their development anyway. So, uh, yeah, that gives some reasoning as to why uh, the team was laid out in such a manner. What, so we don't prioritise the first team playing an FA Cup game on the Friday because of that reason and have to run out a lot of the first team players for that reason? It just seems a bit odd to me. But all right, let's move on. I don't want to talk anymore about the Wimbledon game. Let's get to the bit that everyone wants to talk about. We put a question out to you guys and we said, Pompey have now won one game in seven in League One. Are the recent performances acceptable considering significant injuries in the squad? Thanks to everyone who messages in. It really makes a show. We appreciate it. And it breaks up us lot talking so much. So, well, they're still reading it out, but let's get into it now. So Andrew Perry messaged in and he said, I think we need to change the formation as we got the team to play okay. 4-3-3 or 4 2 3 one 4-4-2's run its course now, unfortunately. Freddie, we spoke about this last week. You said that 4-4-2 was, you know, what won us games earlier in the season and you want to stick with it. Do you still feel like that now? It might just be getting to a scenario where you have to change something for the sake of changing something. Where if the results continue to go badly, how often do you keep on trying to do the same thing? And expecting different results, I think eventually you might simply have to change it for the sake of it, and it will depend on if other midfielders are fit. Um, it might even be trying things like playing Hackett at Cam, which when he played there in the Oxford United game, I thought he did reasonably. Support the midfield a bit more, give another option potentially, and then play maybe Bishop up front in a more traditional way. Oh, you could even go free at the back. I'm not really... The problem is I'm not really enamoured with those choices, purely down to the fact that I'm assuming most of our best players are injured. So thinking about who slots where is very confusing to me. But if you are going to go with the 4-4-2 system, I think you just have to focus on wingers who are playing on their strong side with full-backs who are overlapping to create gaps. And at the moment, they're not doing that by playing inside wingers. I think, anyway. Um, I'll have to have a think about who we're playing next in the league as to whether 
probably should change their four four two for not. But I think they should definitely be looking at it because you can't get going like this. Morecambe, Morecambe away, Fred. Morecambe away. Absolute glamour tie. I know. And the way they usually set up, it might be worth trying to control the midfield a bit because you're assuming you'll have more possession. So, and like in the last game, Pompey had a lot of possession, but the gap, the gap between the strikers were left isolated. I think you do have to go for either a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1, just have another body in the midfield to then cut the play a little bit better, keep it a bit simpler. Is that how you deal with the, the Derek Adams school of shithousery? Pretty much, yes. Anyway, don't want to jump into the preview too quickly there. That's next week's enjoyable episode. Don't want to do uh, too many spoilers. One, sorry, one. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, can I just say to you, I, I don't necessarily agree, agree with everything Fred said there uh, in terms of changing formation, like almost for the sake of it, which I think was the wording you, you used, Fred, like changing formation because... You Why have not? to change something to change something. <laughs> you do, but you need a reason to do so based on the opposition. Like just changing it for change's sake isn't a logical process. Like, okay, this hasn't worked, therefore I'm going to make a change. Like pick a change out of a hat. That doesn't work. It needs I to think be based just needs on to be more control in the midfield. That's why they need the can there rather than the top front. Yeah, so that's a better rationale. And I agree with you on uh, on Hackett. I think in the Oxford game, it was him that bought the red card from or the second yellow from Bowden, wasn't it? With actually a bit of quick footwork, took it round, you know, two and a half players before, um, before getting hacked. So, yeah, just something that brings a little bit of a spark, which is is what we've been lacking. So, I can I can see an argument for that, Fred. Yeah, we discussed about it, and I think when you looked at how we play against Shrewsbury, there was such a gap between the midfield and the attack. And I think that's where someone like, I mean, if you had Jacobs fit, for instance, you'd put him in Cam, wouldn't you? And you just think that Hackett can do that role of sort of linking up the strikers and the midfield. So. Spot on, Fred. John English matches in and says, poor performances, even with the injuries. These results would have been acceptable if it was against League One's top sides, but we should have put Oxford and Shrews to the sword. I'm wondering when we're getting our injured players back. We're all wondering, John. Danny's not going to tell us, is he? He's not going to tell us. When are they back? Now, the thing is, we're all joking around and, you know, to a certain point serious here that Danny Cow doesn't like telling us about injury news. But it does seem that he's also a bit annoyed about potentially how the club are dealing with these injuries and, and the backroom staff to do with that. That was quite heavily hinted at in that chat with Andrew Moon. So something needs to happen because players are getting quite injured quite a lot, aren't they? Let's be honest. So when are we going to get the injured players back? Hopefully soon. Hopefully sooner rather than later. But until that happens, we have to assume we've got the players we've got and how we can line them up. And it's something that needs to be looked at because, well, if it's a trend for most of the season, it will cost us promotion. Whether we end up, it might be the difference between an automatic and a playoff spot. It might even be, if it's really, really bad, a difference between playoffs or no playoffs. If if we were without most of our best midfielders and strikers for most of the game. No, um, I know we don't have a lot to go on, obviously. Um, no insight, no knowledge here, really. Whether it's, whether it's intensity in training with players breaking down or if it's just a horrendous string of bad luck or whether it's the treatment they're getting or whatever it is, something needs to actually be looked at because now it's affecting results quite badly. It's not the only reason why the results have been poor recently. I think it's a bit lazy to say that that's just the reason for them. I think there's been a lot of individual performances that haven't been brilliant anyway. But no, uh, something that definitely needs to be looked at in my opinion. 
Steve Bowles messaged in and he says, for three of those games, we had basically two players out of Danny Cowley's probably starting 11, missing in Rafferty and Lowry and picked up one point. That's not promotion form. Pack only missed the last two games due to injury. It's a fair point, I suppose. Marlon Pack was playing in the centre then to a couple of games ago and this poor run of form has not really been... It stretches back a lot longer than that, doesn't it? Fred touched on, I think, last week that some of Pack's form before that wasn't wasn't great and then he got sent off and then he got injured. So we have had quite a... Just, it's just everything that could go wrong is going wrong, isn't it, at the moment? But that doesn't mean that the players you bring in to be squad players shouldn't be able to put performance in and work the system because they've all trained over the summer in this in this formation, in this system. They should know how to play it. And as Andy was saying in the AFC Wimbledon game, they're just not executing the system. I don't believe that's because they don't care, as Andy said. That's Footballers do care. It's their job. They want to they wanna be good at it. They want to be starting. They want to be playing. But if they can't work out the system and can't play it properly and execute it, I, th- I think it is time to potentially try something different and see if that works. We need to get a bit more control in the game. And at the moment, there's no point in having two strikers up front if they're not getting any service at all. It just It's just completely, completely against the, the reason why you play two up front. You play them because you want to get service into them, overloading the box and, and creating more chances. But if you're not getting any service, it's completely wasted having two players up front. You might as well play an extra attacking midfielder and link the play up a little bit better to the one striker you do have up front. So I don't think there can be any excuses based purely on injuries. It doesn't help. But if the players were executing what they were supposed to do, but maybe weren't good enough, then that would not be all right, but that would be understandable. But at the moment, I actually don't think it is very understandable because they're just not playing the system to make it effective, are they? Lewis Pete meshes in and he says, not acceptable. But the blame lies with the players who have been unable to take advantage of opportunities, except Mingy and Swanson. As soon as Jacob, Pack and Lowry are fit, they can walk straight back in. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, uh, it's hard to make a case for any of those three not coming straight back into the team. And again, I, yeah, I put it at the, at the foot of the players for the last few performances. You look at the, the players that have been available and I personally wouldn't have done a huge amount different to Danny Cowley in most of those games with the exception of the first half against Charlton that I think he got wrong. Other than that, I wouldn't have done a huge amount different. So you, obviously we don't see what happens behind closed doors during the week and how well the players are prepared, but you you don't get to this level of professional football with needing to be taught not to be on your heels when a shot comes in and then not react. Like that's not... That's not advanced tactics 101 on a you know on a Monday morning on the training ground, is it? You should know not to be on your heels. That's on the players. That's that's, that's just my opinion. I'm sure people would uh, strongly disagree with me, but I I agree that you should put it at the players' door rather than the Cowleys for the last couple of defeats or sorry last couple of poor performances, not defeats. Justin K. Messins is not acceptable. Too many mistakes that were completely avoidable, like playing a right back at right back. Yeah, who'd do that? Who'd play a right back at right back? What a terrible tactical decision. I think he means left back at right back, yeah? Yeah, I I think so, yeah. Freeman, are we saying, in the the Wimbledon game? Well, Ogilvy was playing at right back in the Charlton game as well, wasn't he? 
yeah, for okay, yeah. Previous, here yeah. we go yeah exactly but I think now that Swanson cemented his place a little bit better he's got the trust that uh, right back defensively and he's creating stuff going forward at least that mistake is being corrected but we didn't call the podcast the flatters of back fours because we <laughs> thought that that was okay as well it wasn't and it was quite obvious playing too many centre backs that we got no natural width now we've got a bit of natural whip down the right-hand side. We just need to sort the left-hand side out as well, don't we? Because it's very, very predictable when you can only create attacks down one side and then the other side comes in narrow. So, yeah, we've been very toothless and it is down on the players to execute to execute the system. Finney meshes in and he says, hard to not feel a bit deflated, but have faith that injuries are taking a big toll. We have a long season ahead. Let's just hope this doesn't come back to bite us. I think it's consistently not picking up points that's going to come back to bite us. And we're still in a playoff place now due to a good start to the season. We've now got a run of games where if you don't turn it around quickly, other teams will overtake us and we will be dropping out of the playoff race. And do you remember last season how hard it was, even when we went on an amazingly good run, to get back into those playoff spaces. You know, us and Bolton played so well, really, down the stretch, but couldn't get back in. Yeah, exactly that. You you don't want to be part of the chasing pack, do you? Uh, a couple of weeks, or maybe two weeks ago, two games ago, it looked like there was a real divide forming, sort of a, a playoffs and then below the playoffs. There was sort of a four-point gap, which at this point in the season is quite a lot. That seems to have closed in quite a lot. If Pompey win at least one of their two games in hand on the four teams above us. Let's let's say we get four points from those two games. We are what seven six points clear, seven points clear of the top the, the bottom of the playoffs. If they pick up no points from those two games, we're two points clear of the bottom of the playoffs. That's a massive bloody difference in terms of not being part of the chasing pack. And these aren't games where it's like, oh, this is going to end our season if we lose. We're not at that stage of hyperbole, but this is where there is potentially going to be a divide from the playoff teams and the just below playoff teams. And it looked like that divide was starting to be created a couple of weeks ago. And there's a good chance in a couple of weeks that divide will be back again. And we just need to be on the right side of it. Um, yeah, you kind of, it's kind of like being in a, let's say you're running a marathon and there's a lead pack and there's a chasing pack. And it's very unusual that someone, you know, chase catches up that that 500 meter difference between the lead pack and the chasing pack to win. You need to be part of that chasing pack, even if you are at the back of the. Sorry, you need to be in that lead pack, even if you're at the back of the lead pack. That's a terrible analogy. But what I mean is, we can't afford to. Fred's nodding. That is a terrible analogy. Thank you, Fred. Um, but we cannot afford to drop into that sort of second group of teams. I'm just discounting Plymouth at the moment because hopefully, you know they'll start dropping points. But aside from Plymouth, we're, if we win our two games in hand, we're still very much in that lead pack. Uh, whereas if we if we drop a couple of points here and there and we go below Bolton and Derby, who are our next game after Morecambe, then you know, you're starting looking at trying to edge your way back into the playoffs, which is much more difficult than staying there because you start relying on other teams, which at the moment we don't have to do. There's also some negative trends in the play that are coming back. Um which is also a big concern. And it's the fact that those negative trends have been with Pompey in this league for about four seasons, even all of them, six seasons. The In many games, the lack of movement off the ball is a big reason why Pompey haven't created a lot of chances. Pompey being in that phrase where 
they look as if they're trying so hard to create an actual clear-cut chance and then the opposition team have one clear-cut chance and take it every game, Shrewsbury being a good example. Those weren't a factor for Pompey when they were playing well, albeit with their full-strength side earlier in the season. If Pompey actually wants to be a playoff side, those trends need to be snapped out completely. Whether it's the lack of movement off the ball, whether it's the ability to create several clear-cut chances and actually take them, and whether it's the and the individual errors. I know it's no easy easy fix for individual errors, and they will always happen because this is League One. It's not it's not the Champions League, but other teams won't blink. You see Plymouth; they're 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 adapting every single game they're playing, and they're running away with it at the moment. You just, yeah, you're just going to have to deal with those hiccups as best you can, I suppose. Alfie John messes in and says, I'm sticking by the injury excuse. Our midfield has been cursed with injuries. Once we get a fit midfield again, then that's when we should judge. Do you think that's fair, Andy? Do you think we should wait until all the players are back before we pass judgment on this team, the formation, and how they're executing it in games? No, I don't think you you wait until the team are at their absolute best to pass judgment. I mean, how often during the season are any teams going to be at absolute full strength? It's a very rare thing. Um, I think you pass judgment at Christmas-ish based on where the team are in the league because by that point, you're where you deserve to be, to, to coin a cliche. So we know what the team are capable of because we saw it in the first, what, eight to ten games of the season? However, on the flip side of that, we also know what the team are capable of because we've seen games that have gone very much the other way. It's gone from the sublime to the ridiculous and back again a couple of times. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't think we we judge yet. I think you you give it till Christmas and then have a look at the table because players are going to come and go. You know, fitness is transient. It's going to come and go for most of the players throughout the season or throughout half a season. So yeah. I'm not going too low yet. We didn't get too high when we were top of the league, except, you know, the multiple podcast titles and the excitement and the we are going up and, you know, E-I-E-I-E-I-O. Um, other than that, we didn't get too high when we were top of the league. So I'm not getting too low at this point. And if, I, if I'm if i honest, if I look at the league table and if after, well, if before the first game of the season, before Wednesday away, you offered me that, I would accept it. We've what lost the joint fewest games in the league. It's more the performances that are very concerning, isn't it? There's been a couple of red flags, like you know, if if that if that first half against Charlton was a a Tinder profile, you'd be swiping left because there are red flags all over the place, kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I get that that's more of a concern than the actual table itself, but I think we we're not in a disastrous position where we need to think, crap, what's going on? This is all going tits up. We need to change things and fix it. Um, I think it needs a hell of a lot of tweaking from time to time. And I don't think Danny Cowley's got everything right. I don't think he'd claim to have got everything right. But um, we don't need to go mental at this point, do we? Let's, uh, let's just you know, take it easy, lower our blood pressure, take some deep breaths. I do what like messes in and says, lacklustre recent performances, sluggish passing, a lack of penetration doesn't help to inspire enthusiasm. Injuries have had a definite impact, but something changed when we played Ipswich. Since then, we've been a bit rudderless. Do we think the Ipswich game, Freddie Webb, was a turning point? It showed that 
Pompey, I don't think they're entirely up there with the better teams in this league. They're not awful, I don't think. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even go that far. But it's you're saying we're, we're not awful. That's no, a, we're not that's awful. a high praise, Freddie. No, we're not awful. We're a reasonable side, but it, it, it just it doesn't do much to inspire confidence when, if you look at the three games, Sheffield Wednesday, Plymouth, and Ipswich, we've got two points out of possible nine. Two reasonable draws in that, all things considering. But if you are going to get those results, you have to beat the teams in and around the playoffs and of mid-table. And we simply haven't done that in the last two months for whatever reason. I think, yeah, I don't think it was a complete tactical blunder for being rudderless against Ipswich. And then after that, you had the idea of, oh, 4-4-2 suits this best side, being tacker at counter-attack, like attacking with pace down the wings, we're crossing, is the way we create chances with this side. And doing that, trying to do that is was the way to go, really. I think it was just a mixture of poor execution, injuries, and then the odd managerial tactical mistake, but not many of them. I think those are the reasons why, since that game, we haven't been at our best. Gator Woodford mentions in, and he says, yes, every club has its bit blips. Better to get it out of the way now and hopefully be in top form at the business end of the season. Gator, if this is the, the blip and then the rest of the season we steam it, I'm going to be messaging you going, should have believed straight away. Because I appreciate that positivity coming from you. And let's hope that is the case. Let's hope this is the... The blip, but not that blip we had like last season where we left ourselves way too much to do. So that's my concern. Do you remember that blip we had when we didn't win for 23 games? That was a tough blip, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think we're but, into, are we into the more than a blip thing at this moment. In time, no, I, I think we're still in blip stage. I do, I'm yeah. tongue in cheek. I do actually agree with the, the tweet in. Yeah. Uh, but where better to, um, to turn a blip around than Hereford away? It's the classic, classic redemption arc. Stephen Coe messaged in and he says, Yes, that is to be expected. The main positive to take away from the situation is that we're still undefeated at Fratton Park with our backup centre midfielders and our fringe players. Plus, we're still around the top six with games in hand, so the Cowleys are doing a great job considering how challenging it is to have so many key players injured. Once Pack and Lowry are back in the starting eleven together, the matches will become more enjoyable to watch. Then we can focus on cementing our position as a top six team. We are fifth in the league, aren't we, boys? Maybe we're just overreacting about this. Maybe the uh, the typical online stuff is a case of we've watched it game to game, micro-analyzing, and in the macro picture of things, we're still in the playoffs, and we just got to have a bit of faith that we turn it around. We get a, we get a good result against Hereford. We play an easy-ish game away at Morecambe, considering where they are in the league, and Sound there we go. That. Sound by that easy-ish game. I'm saving that up for the the week after the pod the podcast easy. after. Easy-ish. I had the ish yeah. in there, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think we're not, we're not going mad. We're not calling for anything insane. We're not calling for changes. We're not doing any. There's there's no reason for any of that at the moment. That's overreacting. The you know comments you see on various social media of I mean, Cowley out is just batshit at this point. Let's be honest. Yeah. It's not. It's not even on the radar of being on the radar as far as I'm con- like. It's not even a conversation. That's overreacting as far as I'm concerned. Um, us saying, look, these performances haven't actually been good enough and it's concerning that, you know, our team isn't winning a game against a League Two opposition with four first-teamers starting. 
I don't think that's overreacting. I think that's analysis. You can't just sit here and say, oh, it'll be fine in May without analysing what's going on because that's just, you know, burying your head in the ground and, you know, ignoring the nuclear bomb outside your window. It's not going to it's not going to work. You have to actually address potential issues and, and talk them through. Otherwise, you don't fix them as far as I'm concerned. Some of the advanced stats are still reasonable in a lot of these games. Some of the uh, probably, of, I think, most of the time when they haven't, they've been outplayed in the recent games. Their progressive passing accuracy is still better than the opposition. Their passing to the final third is still better than the opposition. They're ahead in at least half of the dual metrics. The expected goals against is still the best in the league, as far as I'm aware. Yes, it is at fourteen point three eight. We only conceded seventeen. Shut up, fourteen point three eight. Yeah, no way. That's insane. Yeah, and conceded seventeen, which is one of the best in the league. I'm just um, pretty. I'm pretty excited for our promotion to the Progressive Passing Championship in May. I'm looking forward to our playoff victory over Oxford, who only averaged seventeen point one six. I'm. I'm. I can't wait. Absolutely. Yes, I think the only issue is going forward, and the and the expected goal stuff has shown it. We're, we're not up there with the best sides for creating quality chances and conversing them. We're roughly around top half ish in the playoff region, but not not away from there. There are some advanced stats there. If Pompey were playing really badly, those would have got dropped off a cliff a little bit. But then again, I think the big reason is just the individual errors and they need to be cut down. And that's something which you see by watching the games um, rather than looking at a macro picture of looking at the stats, I suppose. Thanks, Devin, for in. That was much appreciated. I think we've talk that out a little bit and, and come to quite a, a balanced sort of point of view between the three of us there and everyone else, which is nice to see. Let's move on to Friday. We spoke to Ben Goddard. He covers Hereford, one of their reporters who actually sees him game to game, which is really useful for us because we didn't really know much about Hereford, really, apart from they call themselves the Bulls. That's what I had that one written down on my notes. Mile Story FC. That's it. The man, the myth, my old story. Get your bets in right now. First goal scorer. So yeah, without a guess, what you've just described there, Hugh, that would have been our Hereford preview. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, very good that we had someone come on. <laughs> exactly. We spoke to Ben about the tactics that Hereford can play. We spoke to him about what it's like being in the National League North as well. Some of the problems that happened there. How are they going to line up? And to be honest, some of the quite scary motivation that's going on there and how big a game it is for Hereford against Pompey. So here's Ben Goddard with the Press Association. All right, I'm here with Ben Goddard from the Press Association who covers Hereford Football Club. And, and Ben, thanks for coming on the show. Well, nice to be on, guys. Nice to be uh, invited on a podcast once in a while. Yeah, well, here every day. You want to speak about Pompey, Ben? You know, I'll just sack off Freddie or Andy. There's plenty of room <laughs> on the on the team here to to get you on board. But yeah, no, it's um, it must be interesting for you, I'm guessing, because obviously Hereford is, as a football club obviously took the to plunge down the leagues and are now on the rise again. And I've actually got a friend who's a Hereford fan. Um, I mean, it's a bit weird here living in the southeast, but there's one of you everywhere, it seems. And I saw you went over to play at Three Bridges the other day, didn't you? Which isn't too far from where I am. How did you get on there? Yeah, I mean, Three Bridges it was um, an aw- Hereford have been a really awkward patch of form because half their team got injured within about two, there was a space of two weeks. So they went to Three Bridges um, without, I think they had, um, it was Amardi, um, Aaron Amardi Holloway was sent, uh, signed as a number nine in the, um, in the summer. 
um, former Fleetwood and Shrewsbury striker. And he hadn't played really all of pre-season. And all of a sudden he turned up and had to play centre-half um, at Three Bridges. And then his centre-half partner was also injured. Um, so Zach Lilly. And so Hereford really struggled for bodies. And then somehow have come up with this remarkable FA Cup run. And, um, and all the players seem to have coming back now. Uh, so Three Bridges was a bit... Um, it was a bit of a huff and puff performance, really. They just got over the line. I think there was probably um, probably just about good enough uh, and then came through in the second half, kind of kept it pretty tight in the first half and then uh, come through second half and kind of put them to bed. I think they probably made tired three bridges out. I know three bridges, are, I think it was the high, highest, uh, furthest they'd ever gone in the FA Cup. Um, the I think it was the first qualifying round, maybe. And um, so it was the furthest they'd ever come. I think Hereford just did... A professional job on them, uh, like Portsmouth will have to do at Egg Street on uh, on Friday night. Really, it's quite interesting. So, taking oh, we said PO forecast scout Matt Corrick out there who lives in Crawley to to watch you play. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't seem like that's going to be of any use then. If most of your players were injured, then is that right, Ben? No, no, no use whatsoever. Sorry, Matt. <laughs> on, um, just tear up the notes that he sent in. It's all good, Corrick. Uh, yeah, thanks for coming. <laughs> back of a few uh, backy pouches. I'm just going to have to throw those away now. So uh, there we go. That doesn't sound like something you do, mate. Throwing away backy pouches. Unless they're completely <laughs> empty, there's nothing left in them. I'm anyway, getting side now. Track. Let's get side track, to it. All right, go on, Fred. You were going to ask a question. Uh, how, how has Hereford's season been so far then? Obviously, you're doing reasonably well in the FA Cup. Uh, how's the National League North campaign gone so far? So Yeah, it went dreadfully at the start. Um, yeah, I mean, it was all... Um, all optimism going into the campaign, as, as as every club always is. And then all of a sudden, they hit a massive buffer. And um, and they were calling for Josh Cowling's head, actually, Hereford fans, after four games, um, as as supporters do. Um, before the first before their first FA Cup run, I think they'd lost four on the bounce, um, lost at Banbury, and then Glo- Lo- local rivals Gloucester beat them at Agger Street um, on Bank Holiday Monday, the Easter Monday. Um, and that was really uh, not Easter Monday, sorry, the August Bank Holiday Monday, and um, and that was a really big blow for Hereford fans and them. Um, and they lost their number one goalkeeper who hasn't returned yet since that game, so he hasn't played in the FA Cup at all and may come back for the Portsmouth game. But yeah, so they've had four different goalkeepers in five six weeks. They've had a back four which is ch- swapped and changed every week. And then they, I think they've won six out of seven. It's just it's just been a remarkable uh, turn of results. They went to Boston um, shortly after the um, Free Bridges game, game after the Free Bridges game, before they're going to get beaten heavily at Boston because Boston were going for the uh, going for promotion. They spent a lot of money, a lot more money than Hereford have got, and Hereford found themselves four 0 up in thirty minutes, and you just, you just didn't know where it came from. And I think that is what Hereford are capable of. Um, they've got a lot of players who are National League North uh, North level because they're so inconsistent, but they're fully capable of being League Two players in 10, 15-minute spells or even higher. The two that ring to my mind, uh, Ryan McLean and Miles Story, um, two of the most frustrating players or glorious players at the same time that probably grace the football pitch because... One minute they can be smashing it in from 30 yards and beating us, beating um, defensive pace. And the next minute, the one-on-one, and you 
five times out of ten they'll put it wide. And that's why they play at that level. Hereford fans will just be hoping and praying that they don't miss chances like that on Friday because they won't get many of them. And if, if there's going to be a massive upset, they'll have to take every chance to get. That's uncanny. You said you went to Boston. I was literally just playing around with Boston by Augustana before the podcast started. I don't know if that's a song that any of you guys know. It's got the words, I think I'll go to Boston in it. And you've just literally gone straight into the same topic. That's uncanny. Anyway, yeah. So Miles Story was something, someone who Pompey fans will recognise after his time at Portsmouth. Um, how did he end up at Hereford? Obviously, he's sort of found a slightly lower level than he was playing at with Portsmouth, not by, by a distance, but by a couple of leagues. How has he got on down at Hereford with the exception of those five out of ten chances that he's knocking past the post from one-on-ones? So he's from the Midlands area. He's from Cannock, I think, Pensford, Cannock Way. So near Wolverhampton, not far from where I'm originally from, actually. So he went to Scotland and played for sort of Inverness, um, a couple of Scottish Championship sides. And then I think he got a bit homesick and, um, and so wanted to come back. And obviously playing Scottish Championship level, normally he probably had to go League Two if he was lucky. Somehow Josh Carlin picked him up. Um, Josh Carlin's great at talking players into coming to Edgar Street. It's a, it's a great, it's a good place to play football. It's just miles out of the way for everybody. And Hereford actually train in Birmingham because they don't, the players don't like, well, don't, they, they like traveling to Hereford, but it's another hour onto their journey, an hour and a half onto their journeys every week. So for Hereford, for their home games, it's actually some of the furthest journeys that the players make. They're, a lot of the away games are, are nearer to the players' homes than their home games. The Pompey fans will get that frustration on their Friday night when they travel down the extra hour after after you think you're almost there when you get to the Gloucester, Worcester region and you've got another 45 minutes to an hour to get to Hereford. Um, so, yeah, so, so he wanted somewhere close to home, Miles Story. And um, last season, every time every time he put um, some runner games and performances together, he got injured. So he had a really bad head injury at Geisley and had concussion. Um, so that he'd got four or five um, games and goals on the bounce at that point. So then that was he was out for two, three weeks for that. He came back and then it looked like he was going to help Hereford into the playoffs. He was really hitting form and any hamstring injury ruling him out for the last five or six games as well. And so that's been the story of my, of my story, really, because he's just... Um, Every time he hits a, a really good patch of form, he, he either loses confidence or he pulls up an injury. At the moment, he's, his confidence is really low. Um, he scored at three bridges, actually. So he might have the actual scouting before. <laughs> he actually took his chance very well. But uh, yeah, he hasn't been taking chances that well. Uh, he's been in and outside, so he might not even play on Friday. But we're seeing what, um, who's available for Josh Gowling and which formation he goes with. The story of Miles' story does sound like a fantastic children's book, doesn't it? But um, just moving on to the formation there, how, I mean, obviously you've had players in and out the side, it's been, it's been quite sort of slapped together in some senses, and Pompey are sort of notoriously rubbish on television, by the way, which will probably be good music to any Hereford fans listening. Uh, guys, do you know when the last time we lost, or won, sorry, on television was? It was... God, was... was it, did we beat Generally. Sunderland on, did we beat Sunderland on TV? Like, no, uh, well, no. Well, at Front Park, we lost them like 2 0. I mean, the fact the that league. we got that song, How Shit Must You Be, we're winning on Sky. I remember singing <laughs> it, but I don't know if we won the game. <laughs> I think we, said, we, sang it, we sang it against Charlton recently. That, that, that's probably as well as that game went, but I genuinely yeah. can't remember the last time we won on television. 
yeah, absolutely rubbish, basically. But looking at so that's a bit of music for for Hereford there. But looking at your formation, how do you expect Hereford to approach this game? Because you know Pompey haven't been in the best form. One win in seven in the league, two and nine in all competitions, struggling to score goals at the moment. We are the masters of the one-one draw. But you know, how do you expect Hereford to approach this at home on TV? All the pressure's got to be on Portsmouth. All the pressure is on Portsmouth, and I think they'll get. Well, I've been trying to quiz Josh Down for the last three weeks on on how he's going to approach the game, and he won't give anything away at all. Um, but they they've been playing with this three at the back formation and playing wing back, so it'd probably be the likes of Marty Holloway, the the centre forward turned centre half, and um, playing at the back with um, Jordan Thompson and maybe Luke Haynes, and then um, the wing backs are Jared Hodgkiss who's been around non-league. He might have been around the league a little bit as well. He played a lot of, a lot of his games at Kidderminster Harriers. So he's getting on. It's probably his last full season as a... But he runs up and down the wing. And then young Jack Evans, who was at Forest Green Rovers, he's a very good, very smart, very good player and also gets goals as well. They've all of a sudden come out with this three, three, uh, three at the back. They always used to play four at the back. So yeah, I'll do the three back formation first. So he's been, they've been going with, uh, at Kurs National, went wing backs, and then they swapped it at half time at 1 0, and then went traditional four at the back. So so it's not really sure who, who they'll go with. And then, so he's been, usual traditional Josh Gowling formation is one up top, which will be Tyrone Barnett, no doubt. And then sort of three forwards running off him, just sitting behind him. So the likes of Miles Story, Ryan McLean, Harry Pinchard. And then just playing two holding midfielders behind them. Um, Jeffrey Hansen and Luke Haynes has been playing centre-half or playing that position as well. So, yeah, um, I think he'll go with a three at the back and really try and go at Portsmouth and stun them. He might go do what he did at Curzon Ashton as it was quite successful. Hereford lost dismally 3-0 at Curzon Ashton uh, last season. And then went there this last weekend and won three one. So that's kind of shows the progression in the side and the sort of form and the the belief they've got at the moment. Um, the goals sort of come throughout the team really. Tyrone Barnett's found his goal scoring form eventually, um, but there's there's also the big centre half Orin Penley, who has never really played for a full time football club. He's never really been coached until this season, and. He was sent out on dual registration at the start of um, before the Free Bridges game, actually. And he was brought back at Boston, uh, scored at Boston, and has been on a remarkable run for a centre half of scoring goals since then. Just appears from nowhere. Um, he did against Fylde, who were going for the title, and scored the winner from, from free play, just getting himself up front, just on a, on a roam. I don't, no, no one really knew what he was doing up there. So, um, so yeah, there's there's lots of goals in the side, and there's not re- the the only real focal point is Tyrone Barnett. If Pompey keep him quiet, they'll they'll generally keep Hereford quiet. I usually ask this to, about teams that I don't know much about, um, just get a tiny bit of an insight. What is the key strength of Hereford, but also the key, their key weakness in terms of how they play their players? If you had to pick two things, a strength and a weakness, what would they be? The counter attack is their is their strength. Um, the I mean, Miles Story, Ryan McLean, and Pinchard as well. They they are fast, quick players. Um, Kane Thompson, Summers. They they're all really young lads. Um, they're ambitious lads. 
and Oren Penley defense defense defender as well. They're young lads. Um they and they when they when they hit teams, they hit hard and fast. Um, but they can't keep it up for long. So you so you get the 10 minute spells of Hereford playing really well. And if teams can weather that 10 minutes and then come back at them, then they're quite often found wanting. Um, and also they're young lads. They're not they're they've only really got three or four older heads in the team. Um, so they're full of individual there there are individual mistakes. I haven't seen too many lately, but that doesn't mean that they're not capable of them. They're all capable of individual mistakes. That's why they play at National League North level. Um you see more mistakes, you miss more chances. Um so yeah, they're Portsmouth will be the favourites and if Portsmouth play professionally and don't get overawed by the occasion because it will be a massive one um, then they should go through Lots of ifs there uh, <laughs> and it's gone so well for us this week playing against youthful teams from at least one division below us with our Wimbledon game the other night um, on that note the Wimbledon game we had in horrendous weather conditions that were quite difficult to play football in on a Fratton Park pitch, which tends to be, I mean, pretty nice. It looks like it's like a carpet most of the time. Um, the weather for the next few days is not looking fantastic. In terms of the pitch and in terms of, I guess, firstly, the likelihood of the game maybe not going ahead if the weather's as bad as they say. Secondly, if it does go ahead, in terms of what the pitch is going to be like and how much it's likely to cut up. Um, bearing in mind we struggled in really bad weather on a good pitch, what is Hereford away going to be like if we do get two days of heavy rain and torrential winds like we're forecast? I'm crossing my fingers when I say this, but Hereford pitch never floods. Cross my fingers. So the game should definitely be on. Cross my fingers. Um, also, it's a carpet pitch. It's fantastic. It's the best, one of the best pitches in the league. Um, there are some dismal, dire pitches in the National League North, like park pitches. Hereford's not one of them. They, their, their groundsman basically works full-time. Um, he's only a part-time groundsman, but he puts hours and hours extra into that pitch. It's his, his uh, pride and joy. So the pitch will be perfect uh, for the night and cross my fingers, but it shouldn't be flooded. Although we have got little bits of, of surface water around here at the moment, but the whole of Hereford was underwater um, uh, a year and a half ago. And I, I and they opened up Edgar Street um, to to let people in that have been flooded out of the homes, and the pitch was playable, which is ridiculous because the whole car park was underwater, and you you went onto the Edgar's pitch and there was there's not a drop on it. So I've only known it to be off through water waterlogged pitch once, and that was a dubious decision. I don't think the the line, I think the manager wanted it off rather than the um, the groundsman. So in my five years covering Hereford. I've only known that once and I think that game could have been played as well. Since you covered Hereford for a long time, obviously people would have kept a close eye on them going up reaches of non-league after with, with the Phoenix Club. How has, how has that gone in general? Have Did Hereford put like a philosophy or an identity together to do those multiple promotions beforehand or was it just a case of putting the financial muscle in at lower levels? No, there's, there's, well, yeah, yeah. You, you once you get, when you get 3,000 gates like they were, um, you've got financial muscle when you go into teams that are run on a shoestring and 50 fans. You, they're, they're, you probably line if said they, they, they just went around the, 
the first league they went into, which was like step five non-league, they just brought the best players and just said, come play for us for a little bit more than what you're on. But then after that, it was just momentum. It was, it really was. They they changed the team a lot. Um, Pete Beadle did a fantastic job. Um, just year after year, I think they were sort of lucky they went into the Southern Leagues because I don't, I don't think they're as strong in non-league as the Northern Leagues. So yeah, and it was just one season after another, they just found that momentum, found that winning run. And also, I think a lot of teams were overawed when they come to Edgar Street as well. They're used to playing in front of 50 fans and they're all part-time. A lot of them wouldn't be paid or paid very little. And then they come to Edgar Street and it's 3,000 uh, on a run where they're winning every game, expect the team to win. And and also they had John Mills, who was, I don't know, I don't know how he found his form, but he was on he was on 40 goals a season striker year after year. And then um, and has never done it since. So it was just everything kind of came together for them five, uh, four or five years when they flew up through the leagues. Three years, three, I think it was three or four back-to-back promotions. And then they got to National League North. The manager went within six months. Just I think there was internal problems with the club and the manager. I think there was disagreement and he went anyway. So the manager that put them there from one three titles on the trot was gone within six, six months of National League North. And then they had a couple of seasons where it's just been bottom half really fighting um and covid didn't help because it was no like the um national league north messed up the funding structure and so um hereford lost a lot of their reserves all the money they built up was lost they've not got a backer a financial backer not like a, a money chairman it's ran by the fact the club's run by the fans so what what goes in is paid um so it's got to be run at sustainable uh, so the, this this Portsmouth game is huge for the football club just to get them on back on an even keel. Even last season, when fans started to come back and they had all their festive fixtures off because the team got COVID. So all their derbies had to be Boxing Day, New Year's Day, it was all off. And so you imagine the amount of money, that's like the big biggest days of the, the season for the football club were all off because a couple of players got COVID. So it's it's been really hard for Hereford a shining light's been the uh, Josh Gowlin, really, the manager who guided him to FA Trophy final. And that was only, re- I'd, I'd say, Josh Gowlin will completely disagree with me if he ever is this, but I'd say they only got to the FA Trophy final because all the other National League clubs were the league below them, uh, above them, and start and had to get all their games into a short period because the season was like off, on, off, on. No one really knew. And in the end, they made the decision that the National League would play all their games in a really small period of time, and the National League North was off for the whole. So Hereford only played their FA Trophy games. They didn't play any league games. They just played games behind closed doors to prepare for the trophy, and then they'd play a tired National League side, obviously the league above them, but then they'd beat them, they'd run them off the park because they're, they were playing players that played three, four games in two weeks, and they hadn't played in eight, five, six weeks. For the average Hereford fan, if you offered them either guaranteed playoff spot, which is obviously a bit of a lottery, especially in in the National Leagues, but the opportunity to sort of jump up from that plateau Hereford have hit, if you offer them that or the windfall of an FA Cup third round tie, which is the priority for the whole season for the average Hereford fan, do you think? Um, Third round tie, definitely. Um, Because it's so big. I mean, look at, 
everyone was angry at Aaron Hereford at uh, rivals Kilimanjaro Harris last season, playing West Ham at home, almost beating West Ham. Only a Hereford kid came up and scored the equaliser, Jared Bowen. That would be huge. I like to say that the playoffs is a gamble. I don't, I don't think Hereford are there financially to, to move up to the next level. Um, I think there's a bit of a disparity between National North and National League South clubs that go up. I think the North is a lot stronger than the South Southern League. So when they go up, the Northern teams tend to stay up in the Prem. And the Southern Leagues, a lot of the teams that come down from the, the Prem are Southern-based sides, which obviously messes up who goes into which league as well. So you've got like teams like Banbury and um, Brackley playing in the National League North, even though they're closer to London than Manchester, which is ridiculous, but <laughs> that's another subject. All right, Ben, let's get to the juicy bit of the podcast. I'd like a score prediction, please. The game on Friday and any goal scorers. I'm going to go 2-2. And I'm going to go Tyrone Barnett. And then I'm going to go Oren Penley, last minute equaliser. You're not backing Hereford's magical run last time in the FA Cup where they beat Newcastle with Ronnie Radford scoring. You don't think that's going to... Well, Go on this um, season, I don't know if you guys are aware, but Ronnie Bradford died t- today. So he, so it's extra emphasis on Hereford on Friday night to to create some magic because they're all reading really from from the death of Ronnie Bradford. Uh, very sad. Um, obviously, he did so much for the football club. You you say Hereford is Ronnie Bradford. If you go up north, play any of the the Newcastle sides, it's always Ronnie Bradford. Hereford coming, Ronnie Radford and. Yeah, so it's it's uh, it's real sad day for Hereford today. Actually, the the and even it shows the impact he had on football. Where you've got the likes of Newcastle tweeted Hereford with the sympathies and stuff like that. So uh, that is ad- real added spice and in, into the game that Pompey don't really want. I mean, if it was a banana tie before, definitely is now because obviously the the passion and that Portsmouth can't get carried away with the emotion that's going to go on Egg Street. Obviously, Hereford used to get in 2,000 at home on in most gates, just around the 2,000 mark, 2,200, 2,300. They're going to be close to 5,000 there on Friday night at Egg Street. So it's going to be, the place is going to be bouncing. It's the only, I think, 700 Portsmouth. So they're going to be heavily outnumbered. Portsmouth, professional and Obviously, the Cowley brothers know non-league like the back of the hands. That's that's the biggest. My biggest fear is that the Cowleys will have them set up to, to beat Hereford, and they'll know what's coming. They'll know how to deal with the threats, and they'll just stifle them. Um, Fleetwood did it a couple of years ago in the FA Cup um, second round um, replay. So they got uh, Hereford got draw at Fleetwood, and then uh, Fleetwood came to Egger Street and 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 beat them comfortably. Um, so. Portsmouth need will need to do a similar job, but if they get carried away or if Hereford get a, a foothold in the game, then it's going to be a difficult evening for them. Well, it does sound like it's going to be a difficult tie on Friday. Ben, thanks for coming on the podcast. Could you let everyone know where they can find you online? Yeah, it's um, Ben Goddard HT. Um, so yeah, if you if you really want to follow Hereford's antics <laughs> and Herefordshire sport, yeah, I'm there. Thanks a lot, Ben. Uh, much appreciated. No problem. Thanks for your time. Cheers, Ben. 
thanks, Ben, for coming on the podcast. It's not going to be an easy game, is it, boys? It sounds like, you you know, it's always difficult when you get a non-league side away from home, on TV. That banana is there waiting for us, that banana skin to stand on. And when your team's not doing too well and you're looking for a game to bounce back on, this is either a game we bounce back and we get an emphatic win or more likely find it quite difficult and the result can go either way. Freddie, how do you feel Danny Cowley will approach this game? We played a fair amount of the, you know, we rotated a tiny bit in the last game, but not much. Assuming that we haven't got some of the players back, because we keep saying maybe Pat comes back, maybe Lowry comes back week to week. Let's assume they're not back in this game. How does Danny Cowley approach it? More of the same? I don't see any reason why not. Um, from a defensive point of view, the back four has been fine. Um, Fair enough. Regarding the individual errors, the general defensive metrics are okay. They're also getting forward on the overlap. So I think the backfall will be pretty much of a muchness with um, Swanson, Ogilvy, Robertson, and either Raggett or Morrison if they if they're all fit and fine. And I just think he will go to up top. I just feel, I just feel as if he won't adapt that to a non-league side. I don't think. Um, I didn't mean that to be disparaging, but I don't see I don't see him changing the formation for that. And he thinks that with the extra striker, they'll create gaps in the defence later in the game when they tire out, put in one decent ball, and hopefully Scarlett or Bishop have a one-on-one or something along those along those lines. Hit them with hit hit them with pace. It would be steady in the back four, but when Pompey attack, hit them with pace, purpose to be able to create some clear-cut chances. I think that will be the modus operandi for this game. Getting a cheeky bit of Latin in there, Fred. Hello. Hello. Well, I had to use it somewhere. I did ancient history at A-level, so you're not A-level, fucking uni. Jesus. Fucking anyway. uni. I'm so you glad think, that you, you learned a lot there, mate. I love the fact you've been sitting on that until now, just, yeah. just waiting for the, the moment to drop in some Latin. We're at, what, 165 episodes <laughs> in. And now you're suddenly like, it wasn't relevant beforehand. <laughs> This is my moment. Let's just drop the Latin bomb. The F-bomb drop, dropping some Latin. Oh, yeah. His modus operandi is doing the actus reus of scoring after the mens rea of crossing it into the, the middle. We should just... I think that's A-level law coming out. That's to do with murder, I think. Mens rea, actus too reus. Much Latin, to be honest. That's like mo- uh, intention and action, I think, is mens rea and act. Anyway, um, yeah, we just need to get some Latin in, apparently, Fred. Thank you for introducing that. All right, I like that. This is some deep analysis going on here now, boys, isn't it? This is the new academic podcast, lads. Screw the football. Let's chat dead languages. God, if we're the academics on an academic show, Jesus, we're well. Andy, obviously, being the professional, he will so, have so, to, uh, he'll te- carry it. Obviously, none of us, none of us are professionals of that kind of thing. Let's be honest, no. Andy. Right, Thank Andy, you both has, very much. He's got the job title, but you know, far from that. Yeah, other than it being literally my livelihood to be an academic, I. I mean, you see the true side of me on here, right? They give jobs to anyone these days. Exactly. No, I'm sure you're very, very good at your job. And yeah. you, do speak, you do speak other languages as well anyway, don't you? So, um, Yeah, I suppose we could have, yeah, we have a bit of Russian on here. It's probably not very um, appropriate these days to to start chatting Russian. We'll get investigated if we do that. So maybe not. We'll get, uh, what's the word, demonetized. Not that we're monetized, but we'll get yeah. completely blocked from ever being monetized if I start speaking Russian on these podcasts. 
a useful skill to have but all right let's get we this is quite a long episode now boys and we did quite a good analysis already with ben so let, let's get into the juicy bit and let's go for the score prediction time freddie webb i'd like to know your score prediction please with a game on friday night against hereford and any goal scorers please you're, you're gonna think i'm absolutely mad for saying this uh i think we're losing this game a lot has lined up a lot of i'm focusing on the intangibles which is not really my thing but it's just written, isn't it? With the Roddy Radford connection we've heard from Ben earlier, with it being on television, with the recent skids and the individual errors, it's a lot. Uh, I'm going to go 2 1 Hereford. They're going to nick it in the 90th minute for a corner. What, all the players not sat, no one marking their men again, just sort of like <laughs> looking around the themselves. usual fashion, yeah. Yeah. Andy Mitchmore, what are you saying? Uh, I am saying that we are not losing a uh, a game of football just because Ronnie Radford died. I don't think that's quite how football works. I never said that was just the only reason. You said it was written <laughs> in the stars. So oh, I like, the wait, Andy, let's let's hold this. I like the way that you're now laying into Freddie on Freddie on the fact that he's not based his decision on stats or any sort of data. He he went purely from the heart. And you're oh, like, well, that's not well, how football works. That's not how football works. Oh, well, Danny Cowley is a Taurus and the Hereford manager is a Sagittarius. So that means it's not going to be a goalless draw. Like, where do we draw the line? Let's be honest. Um, I'm going to throw in the Russian here. Fred, the word for silly in Russian for a bloke is gloopy. And uh, you are extremely gloopy for that prediction. I don't see it happening. Um, it's probably going to happen now, right? And I'm going to be gloopy. And next year, next week's podcast title will be Gloopy Andy, which just... Brings up mental images none of our listeners want. Um, I'm going with a 2-0 Pompey win. I think if they can see out the first part of the game where Hereford are going to come out firing, because it is, you know, it's a big game, Friday night, live TV, free t- free-to-air TV. And, you know, it's a, it's a big game for the club and they've got a really good financial incentive as much as anything else to, to try and get a win from the game. You know, it's a, it's a se- potentially season successful defining game for them um, but yeah if Pompey can see out that initial threat you would hope I, I mean I realise I'm talking about fitness about a Pompey side who have more injuries than I can count but you'd hope that the the superior fitness would come through in the second half and uh, and Pompey would be able to get a two goal lead and see the game out so yeah my prediction is 2-0 Hugh Bunce how many goals are you predicting a famous Portsmouth win by? Um, Andy who are your goal scorers please mate? That's a great question. Thank you for asking. I will go with uh, Dane Scarlett from outside the box. I think his little, um, I think his potential Premier League quality in the future will give him that extra split second on uh, on National League defenders. So Dane Scarlett to score one, and I think Curtis will start and score the other one. Fred, did I ask you about your uh, Yeah, scorers? I just realised I didn't say goal scorers. Uh, I will go Ronan Curtis for Portsmouth with the one goal and then a goal from Miles Story because obviously and then uh, Jared Hodgkiss from a corner. With a corner or from a corner? Direct from a from, corner from, is from a... From a corner. Direct from, from a corner from is a, corner. a very bold prediction. <laughs> that would be great as well because it's like been so blustery that the ball just blows in from a corner, we lose the game. Float it up towards the penalty box and let the wind do the rest. Oluwemi did look a little bit dodgy under a couple you, of crosses. You were mentioning so a lot of things that if could If he starts in front happen. of Griffiths, 
Sorry, Fred. You were mentioning a lot of a lot of scenarios that could actually happen. But anyway, that's what we do on the podcast. I'm going to go with a one-one draw. That is what I'm feeling. It just it just seems to be the result. I know it's generally at home, but let's let's just try and get that form away from home as well. Why not? It's on TV. I don't have enough faith until they show me something different. It didn't look good against Wimbledon particularly, and this side will be at home, big crowd. It's a make or break game for them. You know, this is such a huge game in the financial stability of the club as well. I'm going 1-1 with a goal from Ronan Curtis because he always scores again in these sort of games. He is literally the master of round one FA Cup goals or goals in this sort of situation. So if he plays him, because he might not, 1-1, Ronan Curtis. Yeah, I'm just going to go with that. All right. Annie Richmore, it's been great having your podcast. Every week you say that, you say it slightly quicker and it started to just turn into one noise. This week that was Annie Richmore, the podcast. Um, but you're very welcome. It's lovely to be here. Thank you very much for the conversation, boys. Lovely to see you both. Fred, you look wonderful. Q, just very, very sort of uh, peaky blinders. Love it. Yeah, yeah. Got, got a new, not got a new barber. Not that I want to make this podcast gone too much longer because I actually have to edit it. But yeah, <laughs> I've got a new barber, so uh, he's done a decent job, I reckon. On the yeah, looking great, bud. Thank you, mate. It's appreciated. I think that's literally a little bit of fatigue. Then, Freddie Webb's on your podcast. Always a pleasure. Thanks for chatting to you guys again. Amazing. Lovely. And until next time, play out Pompey. You have been listening to the PO Forecast for Pompey News Now. Available on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow PO Forecast and Pompey News Now on Twitter for more information. And there is the full-time whistle!